This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Harold Meyerson will have today's update on the politics of the coronavirus, and we'll also talk about the future of labor after the pandemic. Also, Katrina Vandenhoeven will report on solidarity with frontline workers fighting the virus, starting in New York, where people cheer hospital workers coming off their shifts at 7 o'clock every night. First up, Joseph Stiglitz. He won the Nobel Prize in Economics nearly two decades ago for identifying inequities in market economies. He spent his career warning that economic inequality is a great enemy of democracy. He's been a critic of monopoly power and a defender of higher taxes. And now his new book, People, Power, and Profits, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent, has just been published in paperback this week with a new preface. Joseph Stiglitz, you've argued for years that the economy has not been working well for large parts of the country long before the virus hit. And you ask what kind of economy might best serve the interests of all Americans and the rest of the world. And you emphasize the interconnections between politics and economics, which have never been clearer than in the last few months with the coronavirus. I'd like to start by asking what you think about the federal response to the economic crisis brought by the coronavirus. And, of course, there's many aspects. Let's let's take them one at a time and maybe start with unemployment. We've expanded the unemployment program. We've increased the payments by $600 a month. How would you describe our unemployment program right now? One of the poorest unemployment insurance systems in the world both in terms of coverage, uh, uh, that is to say, the fraction of the population who had unemployment insurance, and in terms of what is called the replacement rate, the fraction of your income that uh, you get if you get unemployed. Uh, The program made uh, some advances and included uh, freelance workers, gig workers, uh, and the $600 was, uh, again, uh, uh, an important step in increasing the replacement rate, rate to make it uh, more adequate. But what I would emphasize that um, a number of countries, Denmark, uh, France, began their rescue policies by saying, let's try to keep workers connected with their employers. Let's try to avoid a large increase in the unemployment rate. That's important because when we restart the economy, those connections will be absolutely vital. And it's even more important in the United States because Americans depend on health insurance for their employer. And uh, if they're uh, moved to unemployment, then they get put on Medicaid, uh, they have to find new doctors, and this is not the time uh, to lose your health insurance. So uh, in that critical aspect, our performance has been dismal. Uh, the increase in the unemployment rate in the United States is outdistanced that of other countries. And that was partly because our program was not well designed. Uh, and uh, the poorest of the design was probably what was called the PPP program, um, where uh, it was supposed to go to small businesses and 
it went to large businesses or not the largest, but the, the largest of the, that could get under the rubric of the small. So do you think we're going to have 20 or 25% unemployment for, for a long time? Uh, will laid off workers ever get their jobs back or, or do we need direct employment by the federal government on, I suppose, on infrastructure programs? Well, a lot of this uh, will depend on how, what the government does in the next few months, uh, what the government does when the pandemic gets under uh, control, and, of course, very importantly, uh, how, how this disease evolves. And we don't know uh, how that will happen. We don't know whether the, uh, uh, an antiretroviral that will be discovered, uh, a vaccine, uh, there are much that we don't know. Uh, right now, I think we are not doing a good job in preparing the economy for uh, the emergence from the pandemic. Uh, that's uh, my criticism, of, you know, ev so evident in the in enormous increase in the unemployment rate. Uh, after we come out of the pandemic, um, we will probably need some stimulus to the economy. And uh, designing that will be important. Uh, but I want to emphasize, when we're talking about coming out, it's not going to be in three months, because the uncertainties about a second wave are going to be with us. Uh, when I say coming out, I mean, we're talking about uh, a year or more from now. So the discussion of for instance, the infrastructure by the president is totally out of place. Uh, infrastructure requires planning. Uh, uh, it takes a long time to be put in place. And it therefore doesn't uh, belong as part of the uh, immediate response to the pandemic. And do you see, uh, are, are you in favor of some kind of program of direct employment by the federal government? Well, what I think is the uh, program that we need right now is what was called the Payment Guarantee Program that Representative Jayapal uh, and there are other versions of that in the Senate, mm -hmm. which attempt to keep the link between workers and their employers, which says the government uh, will uh, pay for the employer uh, to pay for uh, the worker to keep his health insurance. Um, and, it, you know, the amount the government would pay would be reflect the magnitude of the shock that the firm has paid, the decrease in its revenues. Uh, that seems to me the best way for now. And uh, what could design the program so that while they're at the employer, they can get a training program, uh, their skills can be increased so that when production starts again, they'll be all the more productive. Uh, and so I think this could be a, a real good uh, time for investment in human capital. Uh, eventually, if we don't make the right actions today, when we come out of the pandemic, there will be a problem. And then the question you pose becomes the appropriate one. What is the best way of returning to full employment? And uh, 
I think we're going to need a, uh, hopefully we won't be in that kind of state where we need massive programs, but I think that we should have learned the lesson uh, of the Great Depression, where government employment programs have had lasting benefits. Uh, you know, if you go to one of our national parks, you're enjoying the investments that we made in the 1930s, and hopefully yeah. we'll make some similar kinds of investment that our children and grandchildren will be enjoying 80 years from now. Haven't we learned that some kind of universal health care completely independent of employers is, is essential now? Some kind of Medicare for all or something like it? Well, I think what we've learned first is that our healthcare system doesn't work very well uh, and that the toll that it exerts on the poorest is, should be viewed as unacceptable. Uh, United States is the only country that doesn't recognize the right of access to health care. And the result of that is health status of Americans is lower than in other advanced countries, even though we spend so much more. And health inequalities are greater than in other countries. This nasty virus goes after people who have weak health status. And that's why it's had such a devastating uh, effect on so many low-income communities across the United States. So the first order in my mind is let's make sure that everybody has access to health care. Now, I agree with you that uh, uh, having uh, some kind of single payer, uh, some system like France, all of the, there are many different ways of making sure that everybody has access to health care and separating out that link between employer and health coverage. I think uh, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, which of these systems, whether France or the UK is better, is a matter of debate. But we also face a political problem transition, and I'd rather see things get done than uh, not let uh, the, uh, the perfect be the enemy of the good. Well, the other part of the economic aid package passed by Congress are these immense funds available to the biggest corporations. You've been concerned your whole career about, about exacerbating inequality. Isn't that pretty much the obvious result of, of the funds that are available to the Fed and the Secretary of the Treasury to dole out? Oh, Michelle, that will be one of the consequences. You know, my view at the very beginning is our objective should be first protect health, for instance, by making sure everybody had access to uh, paid sick leave. We recognized, Congress recognized the principle that then exempted 75 to 80%, uh, including the big businesses that we are now bailing out. That should have been totally unacceptable. The second priority should have been protecting the most vulnerable. And we haven't been doing a, a very good job, and that's reflected in the increase in the unemployment rate. Um, the third uh, is uh, making sure that our economic capacity is maintained for the day when the pandemic is put under control. But funds are scarce and we have to allocate them carefully to make sure that they go to where they're really needed and to help the people who are most vulnerable. Um, what I find so unconscionable is, for instance, giving $25 billion to the airlines when some of those airlines got a bundle of money in 2017 as a, res as a result of the tax cut in 2017 
Uh, one of them didn't pay any taxes in 2018. They paid out billions and billions of dollars in dividends and share buybacks. They didn't put the money to good use in creating capital buffer. Uh, they mismanaged, in a sense, the company. And now we're supposed to rescue them so that they can line their pockets even more? To me, that's unconscionable. Uh, what we should have done is to insist that, okay, uh, you need funds now? We'll take a stake in your firm so that we're, we're not just taking the downside risk. Uh, we're getting the upside potential. And uh, there ought to be uh, a compensation to our taxpayers who've been robbed blind by these companies. Uh, and, uh, you know, it would be one thing if they had been contributing what they should. But many of these, uh, one of their key skills of the chief financial officers is avoiding taxes. Mm-hmm. And let's talk for, for, for a minute about Amazon clearly the biggest winner they have this huge ability to deliver stuff to you and me and they were just knocking on my front door right before uh we initiated this call uh uh, amazon is going to emerge ever bigger ever more powerful should we do something about the size and economic power of amazon well one of the issues i raise in my book uh people power and profits it is uh, the middle uh, word is power. Mm. And uh, one aspect of power that I was very worried about was economic power, monopoly power. But one of the reasons I'm concerned about that is that it's inevitable that kind of economic power gets translated into political power. That was the reason we passed antitrust legislation in the late uh, 19th century. It's absolutely clear, and my book documents it, the growth in market power in the United States. It is one of the factors contributing to the growth of inequality. It's one of the reasons our economy, overall growth rate, has not been doing very well. Uh, And so to me, a first order, you know, we don't have a competitive market economy, we have a monopoly economy. Uh, And uh, This kind of monopoly, where they are able to use some of the information they get to take advantage of us, to exploit us, is even worse than the old-style monopoly that we had at the end of the 19th century with Standard Oil and and the tobacco monopolies. So I am even more concerned about monopoly today than I would have been at the end of the 19th century. So yes, something should be done. Now, you asked the question, What? Well, in my book, I talk about two different kinds of things. In some cases, we can break up the monopolies. There was no reason we should have allowed Facebook to uh, acquire uh, Instagram, the other acquisitions. We should just separate them. Uh, And we've done that kind of structural separation in the past. The second thing is to make sure they don't engage in anti-competitive practices that they don't convert the power that they have uh, in one area to leverage monopoly power in another area. We saw that, for instance, with uh, Microsoft, where it controlled the operating system and it leveraged that to control uh, uh, the software programs uh, for office uh, for offices. Yeah. Uh, 
And that's been going on. They've been uh, using the information that they get with artificial intelligence uh, to take advantage uh, of uh, their customers and uh, interestingly also of their suppliers. Uh, so uh, uh, they allow people on the platform and then when they start to do well, they introduce something, uh, uh, a product to compete with them. Uh, that shouldn't be allowed. They're either a platform, a neutral platform, or they're a competitor, but they can't be both. And we have to uh, stop that kind of, of anti-competitive practice, which has become pervasive, not only in Amazon, but elsewhere uh, in, those, uh, in those firms. Some of the other things on the list that, of things we need Congress to do something about right away, but certainly on January 20th, assuming uh, Joe Biden becomes president, the Democrats regain the Senate, state and local government relief, postal service funding, eviction protection, rent cancellation, payroll support, bankruptcy reform. What are your priorities here? Well, I think I, I begin with two of the things which I view to be the central functions of government that have been undermined uh, in the last 40 years. One of these is uh, social protection. Uh, another one is education and research. Um, let me first begin with uh, education and research. Uh, one of the themes of my book is that I asked the question, why is it that our society, our economy uh, is so much better off than we were 250 years ago? Uh, and the answer is science and advances in social organization. Um, science has uh, done absolute wonders and some of the evidence of that is right now with the COVID-19. Uh, without science, we would not have been able to identify this. We wouldn't even be talking about a vaccine or antiretroviral. Uh, we would be like the uh, Middle Ages, the Black Plague. We knew something was happening, but we didn't know what it was and had no idea how to respond. Um, so science is absolutely essential, uh, and yet, the administration has called for a cutback in science every year of about 30%. Hmm. And of course, those cutbacks left us uh, much less prepared to address uh, this pandemic. Science, of course, requires education. And uh, we are uh, going to be facing a very difficult time in our educational institutions. Every one of their major sources of revenue are going to be uh, drying up. Um, and that then brings me to uh, at the top of my list are uh, support for science, support for state and local governments, because state and local governments provide uh, uh, education, support for welfare, and healthcare, um, Medicaid. They are the backbone of our, you know, fiber of our communities. And yet they will be devastated by this crisis. Their revenues will plummet. They all have balanced budget frameworks. That means when their revenues go down, they have to cut back on their expenditures. 
that is a word that in Europe became a, a dirty word called austerity. And we know what happens with austerity. The economy goes down. If you do it ruthlessly enough, you can get the unemployment rate up to 25%. You can get the youth unemployment rate up to 60%. Uh, the EU did it in, in Greece. We could do it too. Uh, so if we don't help the state and local communities, we will have a social disaster, a economic disaster, but also the future prospects of our economy will be uh, uh, in danger. The second thing uh, that uh, I would emphasize uh, th that uh, uh, we need to, uh, to do is uh, address the whole range of problems associated with inequalities, which have uh, exerted such a toll on our economy. And one of the points of my book was to try to understand the foundations of that inequality so that we had the best approaches to addressing it. You know, the reason we have so much inequality in the United States is not the laws of nature, uh, not the laws of economics, it's the laws of man, it's policy. Other countries have the same laws of supply and demand uh, as we do. Uh, uh, it's not the laws of economics that differ between us and Norway. Uh, <laughs> it's policy. And we've adopted a set of policies that have exacerbated both inequalities in market income and inequalities in after-tax and transfer incomes. And so uh, we need to systematically deal with each of those major causes. And one of the things that's concerned me over, for a long time is the intergenerational transmission of advantages and disadvantages of wealth uh, from one generation to another. And that's, of course, related as well to pervasive discrimination that uh, we see uh, in the United States. Uh, one of the most disappointing aspects of the COVID-19 response was uh, the way it's playing out in access to PPP, to the small yep. business loans, where it appears that those who are connected with the banks are doing a lot better than the most less connected. And as you would uh, have expected, it's the more vulnerable who are less connected. Joseph Stiglitz, his book, People, Power, and Profits, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent is out in paperback this week with a new preface. Professor Stiglitz, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you. It's been a real delight. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for our update on politics in the age of the coronavirus. For that, we turn, of course, to Harold Meyerson. He's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the L.A. Times op-ed page. The headline today, Thursday, 
is that Trump threatened to sue his campaign manager over his low poll numbers. What do you make of this threat? It's uh, it's delightful. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of the quintessence of Trumpism, which is to say uh, the uh, projection of blame for his own his own problems on uh, on other people uh, for things that he himself is responsible for, like uh, the conduct of his presidency, like his inability uh, not only to deal with the coronavirus pandemic, but even to exude the slightest degree of empathy at himself uh, in this in this crisis. I, I wondered I wondered what these polls uh, were. Um, looked them up. There's a Quinnipiac poll last week that showed Biden ahead in Florida, 46 to 42. And there's a recent Fox News poll that found Biden leading Trump in Michigan by a lot, 49 to 41. Right now, looks like Trump doesn't have a chance in Michigan, and he probably isn't doing well in Florida either. Yes, you do have that right. And the Florida poll uh, is only one of several that shows him falling behind uh, Biden in Florida. And there's a larger problem for Trump uh, in that, which is to say Florida, of course, is broadly speaking uh, uh, the retirement home for Americans east of the Mississippi. And uh, he's no longer polling well among seniors. Uh He's losing that vote, 65 and over, uh, by a margin, which he carried handily in, uh, you know, I mean, which, which he did well in, in 2016. And we need to talk about meat. The meatpacking industry turns out to be one of the three hotspots for the virus in America right now, along with nursing homes and prisons. There was talk that meatpacking plants might have to close as a result, but Trump declared on Tuesday that meatpacking plants were critical infrastructure that must be kept open during the pandemic. Uh, Does that mean that the supply of hamburgers will remain steady? Uh, It may or may not. Uh, It's rather obvious why Trump is is concerned about this. He's uh, uh, his diet apparently consists of uh, hamburgers and steaks and meatloaf, uh, you know, and uh, there goes the vegan vote right now. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, this kind of exposes the, uh, to use a nice uh, uh, word favored by uh, the Marxian left, the contradictions in the status of workers who have been deemed essential, including by Trump right now, but simultaneously, uh, you know, also de facto deemed to be disposable. It's obvious uh, dangerous uh, in, in all times uh, to work in such plants, but especially so now, now that meatpacking plants like nursing homes are clearly incubators of, uh, of the coronavirus. Uh, it, it really expresses sort of the callous disregard that Trump has for these workers and maybe the high regard he has for his dinners. <laughs> and remind us about 
the the uh, what used to be the world of meat meatpacking uh, work the meatpacking workforce. When I was young, there was a wonderful interracial union called the Uniting the United Packing House Workers. What happened to them? Well, uh, I mean, they're still around because they've been absorbed into the United Food and Commercial Workers. There was like three mergers over a, a 20 year period that itself was 50 years ago uh, that uh, that led to this. The United Packing House Workers Union was a great union. And when I was uh, in my 20s, I was privileged to meet its uh, uh, aging president, Ralph Helsting, who had been the union's lawyer. Um, the union provided some of the funding for the Montgomery bus boycott and all kinds of civil rights activity. Uh, it uh, produced, uh, out of its own leaders, uh, some progressive uh, members of Congress from uh, the African-American community in Chicago. Uh, really, it was a stand-up terrific union. Uh, but uh, uh, over the years, uh, unions in general have become weaker. Uh, though the union still represents many, though not all, of the uh, uh, meatpacking plants around the country. Uh, and it's been a very uh, persistent and loud critic of Trump, uh, even before the crisis, but particularly now, they're the ones who are mounting the digital barricades, saying uh, that this is cruel and unusual punishment uh, to force these workers back to work, any, absent any adequate safety provisions. And of course, the Labor Department under uh, uh, Anthony Scalia's son, Gene Scalia, has been uh, absolutely deficient in providing uh, occupational safe, uh, safety and health provisions for all kinds of industries, slaughterhouses uh, included. The uh, president's order said, had a striking sentence, closure of a single large beef processing facility can result in the loss of over 10 million individual servings of beef in a single day. How is that possible? <laughs> I don't know. I've never had a beef census, uh, and, and I, I very much doubt that that's true. But then, you know, that's in the grand tradition of uh, Trump uh, pronouncements. So uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know how many of those consumes. I suspect it's uh, usually more than one, but that still doesn't get you to 10 million. Well, it it also could be that the the um, consolidation of the meatpacking industry has resulted in incredible concentration that maybe we haven't been aware of until till today. No, that's absolutely true. And it's certainly the case that the closure of several uh, plants has, uh, you know, the decline in meat or chicken production, what have you, uh, measurable, sometimes like 10%. So like every other American industry or all industry, uh, the financial, the forces of financialization and consolidation have uh, reached out to the uh, uh, meatpacking industry or chicken packing industry, whatever we want to call it, as well. Next question. How bad is the economy going to get? We have some new statistics this week about U.S. gross domestic product, the broadest measure of goods and services, they tell us. It fell at an annual rate of almost 5% in the first quarter of 2020. This is the first decline since 2014 and the worst quarterly contraction since 
2008, which was, of course, a deep recession, how much worse is it going to get? Second quarter, which is, uh, is really the period where we've seen the shutdowns. So it, it's, it's going to get worse. Uh, the new unemployment filings uh, have uh, now raised the uh, total number of people who have successfully filed for unemployment. Uh, in the last five weeks to 30 million. And a study by the, the uh, Economic Policy Institute suggests that, uh, you know, maybe only a little more than half of people trying to get unemployment have succeeded in, in making that connection. I mean, you know, unemployment insurance is administered, uh, although it was created as part of the Social Security Act in 1935, it's administered by the state, unlike security itself. Um, and the states aren't, uh, don't have the wherewithal, this many applications in so short a time. So, you know, we could be looking when, at the, uh, uh, when, when the unemployment figures come out, I would think that would be in about a week, not the people who will file for unemployment insurance, but the overall unemployment rate comes out from the Bureau of Labor Statistics next week. It is possible we could be at a level like that of the very bottom of the Great Depression in the winter of 1932-33 when it was a quarter of all American uh, workers. And so uh, this, this is pretty damn bleak. Pretty damn bleak. Uh, and in the meantime, there are still Democratic primaries uh, to be held uh, or or not, Andrew Cuomo canceled the New York Democratic primary. Uh, do you have any comment on that? Yeah, really uh, uh, ridiculous. Uh, you know, they've already established that everyone can vote by mail. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of people who still want to vote in the presidential primary uh, for Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden. The Sanders people in particular want to have a presence at the Democratic convention, be it digital or actual, I suspect it will be digital, uh, to affect a platform and things like that. And this just takes uh, that option away from them. And it takes a fundamental right of the American people away from them, too. So I found that very uh, disturbing, even, even, you know, even when the city is absolutely the center of the pandemic and experiencing it worse than any place else on the continent. Well, you said the economic prospects uh, are extremely uh, bleak uh, right now. The Prospect has just published a terrific section on the future of labor after the pandemic. It's a scary time to be thinking about this. You start out by your introduction to this uh, symposium by pointing out that the New Deal flourished both despite and because of terrible economic conditions. Of course, there are many differences. One of the biggest is that today the working class has been officially separated into essential workers and everybody else. Where does that take us? Well, look, there are all huge gaps in working class solidarity in this nation's history, the primary one always being that of race uh, and gender. Uh, uh, you know, uh, this has also been a time of unsanctioned walkouts and all over the country. Um, Mayday will also see, I think, a first in American history, which is to a nationwide rent strike. 
Now, we don't know how big it's going to be, but I have been struck by the fact that a whole host of frontline uh, organizations that are not, you know, really far left, just progressive, have uh, have endorsed this and said, look, I mean, we know there are an unprecedented number of Americans relative to anything since the Depression uh, who actually can't pay their so let's uh, let's make a rent strike out of this now historically rent strikes have only been uh, you know sort of held a single day where the landlord is uh, is a jerk and, uh, and not servicing the building or in particular communities and tenants who can't make the rent uh, you know, and in the 30s the Communist Party and some other group organized this on a local basis it's a paradox of the Great Depression that you cited is uh, really bad economies make people uh, sometimes reasonably willing to take certain risks, certainly going out on strike from your job when there's no assurance you're going to uh, get another. Uh, but it also raises a, a, a level of consciousness and a level of, a level of militance, and we're seeing both sides of that equation again now. Here's the big problem. We remember that in the last big crash, 2008, there was no upsurge in labor militancy, despite what might have seemed like a, the favorable situation of Barack Obama's presidency. What would make this time different? You know, the, the problem that you just stated, John, the, uh, the failure, uh, despite a financial sector-led crash and a progressive administration, to accomplish anything that the Roosevelt uh, administration accomplished in a similar situation, there is a generation uh, of millennials now in the labor movement and elsewhere who are a good deal more militant and a good deal more wised up as a result of the 2008 and following fiasco uh, that would push uh, labor in a, in a more progressive direction and certainly demand more of uh, a democratic administration, should there be a democratic administration, should there be a Democratic Senate. I think those are uh, necessary conditions uh, to do a lot of this. I mean, you've got you've got to change labor law at the federal level. Uh, you you can do things like raise the minimum wage in a given state, but you can't make it more possible to uh, organize at least the way the National Labor Relations Act uh, is set up, uh, unless you change the law at the federal level. The, the other good news is that. Uh, uh, Barack Obama's vice president, a guy named Joe Biden, seems to understand this at, at some level. And uh, certainly every Democratic presidential candidate uh, who put out a platform at some point in the last year uh, had a much stronger uh, labor rights, labor benefits uh, uh, platform than the Democrats had seen, sort of reacting to finally the awareness that uh, the nation's amazing levels of economic inequality have to be at the top of the Democrats' to-do list. Another one of the highlights of this special package of the prospect for me was the, um, the idea of unions bargaining for the common good. Uh, please explain that part. Well, this is something that began, uh, I, I think, in the Chicago teacher strike of 2012, I think, when they were uh, bargaining not simply for the usual increase in wages and benefits, but for the reopening of schools that had been closed in, uh, in the south side of Chicago. Uh, and then it, it sort of spread. Uh, it was part of the 
uh, Wildcat teacher strikes of 2018-9 when they were asking not simply, again, for their own uh, demands, but for uh, bringing nurses on campus and libraries and doing things that would help the community. And eventually, this evolved into some of these groups, uh, some of these groups actually uh, coordinating their demands with community groups, uh, since uh, obviously issues like affordable housing uh, are affect teachers, affect communities, affect the lives of their students. Doctrine has kind of been theoretically shaped and given a name by um, some people at Town University, whence the term bargaining for a common good. And one of the uh, chief strategists, Steve Lerner, who was the mastermind of the uh, Justice for Janitors campaign a couple decades ago, has an article on this in that labor symposium. You can read this important package on the future of labor after the pandemic at prospect.org. Harold Meyerson put it together. Harold, thank you for that, and thanks for talking with us today. Always a pleasure, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. We hear a lot of bad news about demonstrations demanding the end of the coronavirus stay-at-home policy and Trump tweeting liberate Michigan and liberate Minnesota from the public health policies required by the virus. But there's another story. The crisis has created a new sense of solidarity all over America for that, we turn to Katrina Vanden Heuvel. Of course, she's publisher and editorial director of The Nation and a weekly columnist at the Washington Post Online. We reached her today at home in Manhattan. Katrina, welcome back. Thank you, John. I hope you, you and yours are safe. Well, thank you. You live in New York City, which has been, of course, the hardest hit of all American cities. More than twice as many deaths as from the 9-11 attack already. But there's this scene every night on the streets of New York. Seven o'clock is when the shift changes at hospitals, when medical workers who've been there all day emerge from the, the disease war zone into the open air. Tell us about seven o'clock in New York City. I was sitting reading one after what seven o'clock one evening, and I heard the sound of cheers and clapping and clanging, a kind of standing ovation, if you will, for the first responders. For the doctors, the nurses, the custodians, the cooks, and other healthcare workers risking their lives to save thousands of lives. And it was such a reassuring sound, John. At first, I didn't know what it was. And in New York City, you know, you never know. And it is such a reassuring sound at 7 p.m. because the city's quiet, is very quiet. I'm sure your listeners have seen these photos of empty, empty canyons. And you often hear just the piercing wail of an ambulance or a fire truck. So these sounds are signs of life. Amidst death, as you said, New York City is the epicenter. New York is, I think, has more deaths than any other country. So this is really powerful. And I will say that, you know, we all know that the pandemic has exposed, cruelly exposed, the pre-existing weaknesses of our health system, our political system, our economic system, 
But at the same time, it has, as I write and I feel, generated a new sense of solidarity. And in that spirit, it's very encouraging in terms of what might come out of this, John, because we don't know when that will be, but you're a historian. In so many other horrific moments in our history and other countries' histories, it required a crisis to bring about a more radical change. If you have the conditions, if you have the movements, if you have the solidarity, if you have leaders. And so in that spirit, I'm moved by what I'm seeing in New York, not just as I say New York around the country and the world. Yeah, I was talking to, uh, I was trying to set up a a FaceTime visit with a a friend who lives on the Lower East Side. And she said, well, it can't be at seven o'clock because that's when I go out and bang on my pots with all the other neighbors. But as you say in your new column at the Washington Post online, it's not just cheering. Americans are also taking action that expresses this new kind of solidarity. Uh, Let's talk about the action for a minute. So I love that, you know, Staten Island, uh, one of the great boroughs, complicated boroughs, of um, you have undocum- undocumented women who've lost their jobs, sewing face masks for workers on the front lines of pandemics. You have Sikh temples uh, mobilizing their communal kitchens to prepare thousands of meals for seniors and other vulnerable people. And restaurants around the city, John, you know, are donating food, are donating pizzas and more to healthcare workers with no time to leave their hospitals. So it's, it's New York, but it's also New Jersey. Uh, college students are filling in for Elderly Meal on Wheels volunteers. Michigan, school buses have become food trucks. Uh, around the country, uh, our sports correspondent, Dave Zirin, I didn't report this, but sports arenas are converting to help and become hospitals and with workers. And Chinese Americans, John, who are facing threats of violence, faced heightened violence and hostility since the pandemic began, since xenophobia has been unleashed, raising money for life-saving medical equipment. So what's important is it's not just the cheering, which is inspiring, but it leads to acts and it leads to actions. I do love the story. Uh, Nation editor Don Guttenplan is in London as we speak. And he had just, I think they took a break from their Seder to hear what I report in the column, which is the clapping. It's weekly clapping, interestingly, in Hmm. the UK, and it's clapping for the National Health Service. Oh. And it's no longer just about volunteers. When they asked for 250,000 volunteers as part of like the ovation in Britain, they got 750,000. But there was something called One Million Claps, which just raised some 5 million pounds for the NHS. So that's powerful. And our copy, our, our senior editor, Ron Carey, as you know, is in Spain. We got a multinational team here. And in Spain, as in, I think, in Italy, this is where the clapping on the balconies, the cheering began. And in classic uh, Italian fashion, they're lowering food baskets from windows to workers. So there's a lot happening in terms of the solidarity that one hopes and seeks coming out of this. And of course, all of this is happening without the kind of national leadership that the times deserve and require. And that makes these more grassroots uh, efforts and efforts in our big cities all the more, all the more important because we're not getting anything that we need. We're not getting what we need from, from the White House. If I had to describe the daily press conferences at the White House, the rallies, the rallies, there is such a lack of compassion 
from the president. It is a measure, I think, of how solidarity is bubbling and building up outside because we're not seeing it. Now, we do see it. Let's be honest. I mean, we've talked a lot about this, John. It's not just the president. We've kind of ignored and tried to avert our eyes from some of the cravenness and rank uh, venality of this president. But governors are showing some leadership of compassion. Mayors, even down ballot, so to speak, local officials. And I do think, and I wrote this in the column, I think it's um, vital that there be people solidarity. I've always believed in change from the bottom up and solidarity from the bottom up being met from above. But the solidarity is a supplement. It's not to supplant the role of government. And I was on, we started a breakfast series at The Nation, John, uh, noon on Wednesdays for the West Coast participants. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) We had the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, the second largest caucus in the House, Pramila Jayapal, the terrific representative from Seattle. And she spoke so eloquently in concrete, accessible ways about some of the legislation, which if we could pass would make an enormous difference in the lives of the most vulnerable unemployed, like paycheck protection guarantee. And I will say the other part of solidarity that moves me is that there is a solidarity around ideas that were once considered marginal, but at times, even before crisis, but certainly at crisis, moved to the center. Because as someone wrote, reality endorses them. Reality endorses these ideas. And I'm thinking of Medicare for all. I mean, think of what a country we would be if we didn't have this fractured, balkanized healthcare system. And I'd also think that the existential crisis of climate has to be amplified in these times. And a Green New Deal is not just grappling with that crisis, but it's also putting people back to work, which is going to be so critical, John, because we're looking at Great Depression figures. And it's, um, it's frightening. But it's also, I think, if we have leadership and ideas moving in new ways, as I said, out of crisis have come some real possibilities in this country's and world's history. So in New York City, seven o'clock every evening, when the hospital shift changes, you hear the banging, the clapping, the roar of the crowd shouting out their thank yous to the healthcare workers. Walt Whitman wrote, I hear America singing. I guess that's sort of what it's like. Katrina Vanden Heuvel, read her at the Washington Post online and at thenation.com. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you, John, for you and for Walt Whitman. And finally, in these trying times, I wish we still had Paul Krasner around. I don't know why this occurred to me, but we need the we need the the iconoclastic anarchic spirit of Paul Krasner. He died on July 21st, 2019. And at that point, we we put together a short recollection of him. Let's listen to it now. He founded and edited The Realist, the first underground magazine of anarchic humor and political commentary. He was a friend of Abby Hoffman and Lenny Bruce. I spoke with him at KPFK Radio in Los Angeles in 1999, when a book of his interviews from The Realist was published. I asked Paul Krasner about his interview with Norman Mailer. I said, I'm under the impression that you have almost a Catholic attitude toward birth control. And he said, I do. In a funny way, I do. 
he says, the fact of the matter is that the prime responsibility, now this, will, uh, uh, this was uh, before feminism, <laughs> uh, the prime responsibility of a woman probably is to be on earth long enough to find the best mate possible for herself and conceive children who, imp who will improve the species. If you get too far away from that, if people start using themselves as flesh laboratories, if they start looking for pills which prevent conception, then what they're doing, what really at bottom they're saying they're doing is acting like the sort of people who take out a new automobile and put sand in the crankcase in order to see if the sound that the motor gives off is a new sound. And then I say to him, you're forcing me to the point of personalizing this. Do you use contraception? Do you put sand in your crankcase? <laughs> He says, I hate contraception. And I said, I'm not asking you what your attitude towards it is. He said, it's none of your business. <laughs> Let me just say, I try to practice what I preach. I try to. Then you believe in unplanned parenthood? He says, there's nothing I abhor more than planned parenthood. Planned parenthood is an abomination. I say, is it possible that you have a totalitarian, because he, he kept talking about totalitarianism, mm -hmm. uh, communist or fascist. He's, so I said, is it possible that you have a totalitarian attitude toward masturbation? And he said, well, I wouldn't say all people who masturbate are evil. Probably I wouldn't even say that some of the best people in the world, I, I would even say that some of the best people in the world masturbate. But I am saying it's a miserable activity. And then... I say, well, we're getting right back now to this notion of absolutes. You know, to somebody, masturbation can be a thing of beauty. Because uh, he had been talking about uh, the, the uh, bombing of Ethiopia, that if you look down from the plane, it had a certain beauty to it. Okay. So I, I say, it could be a thing of beauty. And he says, to what end? To what end? Who is going to benefit from it? And I say, it's a better end than the beauty of a bombing. <laughs> and he says, masturbation is bombing. It's bombing oneself. And then I say, and you have to remember that, you know, I was like a post-adolescent uh, <laughs> revealing myself in these questions. Uh, I see nothing wrong if the only person hurt from masturbation is the one who practices it, but it can also benefit. Look, Wilhelm Steckel wrote a book on autoeroticism, and one of the points he made was that at least it saved some people who might otherwise go out and commit rape. He was talking about extremes, but, and Mailer interrupts and says, it's better to commit rape than masturbate. Yeah, that, that was a great, great moment in, in the history of interviewing. Uh, Paul Krasner gets Norman Mailer to say, it's better to go out and rape than to masturbate. I did a little internal double take there. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But, but he caught himself. He said, maybe, maybe. maybe the the maybe. whole thing becomes difficult. And I said, yes, but rape involves somebody else. The minute you, and then he said, just talking about it on the basis of violence. One is violence toward oneself. One is violence toward others. And you don't recognize, let's follow your argument and be speculative uh, for a moment. If everyone becomes violent toward themselves, then past a certain point, the entire race commits suicide. But if everyone becomes violent toward everyone else, you would probably have one wounded hero monster left. And I said, yes, and he'd have to masturbate. <laughs> <laughs> we recorded that interview at KPFK in Los Angeles in December 1999. Paul Krasner died July 21st. He was 87. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. 
Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.